If you have your Bibles tonight, I ask you to find Luke chapter number 2. During this, um, this holiday season, we, we've made a, a, a real choice here to contemplate the Advent, to contemplate the coming of the Lord, to contemplate the Incarnation. And um, one thing I've learned as I've dug deeper in is I have, I have way more questions than I do answers. I have, I, I've enjoyed the pondering more than I've enjoyed the, dis, the, the, the answer getting, you know. In other words, it's a, it's a wild thought to think, you know, first, is there a God? Yeah, I believe that. And that he lives so much outside of this system that nothing in this system affects him. Not gravity, not time, not space. And that he would step into it. That's a wild thought to me. And um, I recognize that. If you, if you happen to be one of those people who's never thought of it before and you're kind of hearing it for the first time, you're like, whoa, that's crazy. I would even say the incarnation is a wilder thought than the resurrection. A much wilder thought because the resurrection is material matter being reanimated. We come up with stories like that, don't we, called Frankenstein. Um, you know, that's not beyond the pale of human imagination, but making a system and stepping into it might be a wilder thought. Last week, we looked at Christ in the manger, the literal appearance of Christ coming to the earth. And uh, then today, we're going to look at Christ as a child. And um, the cool thing is about the Bible is, it, is it, it's not intimidated by not giving you all the answers. I like that. Um, they say in three verses, Luke 180, Luke 240, Luke 252. And you might can include a passage from Mark 4. They, those, those five, four verses across uh, two books, that's all they say about his childhood. And three of them are almost identical. They basically say, he grew up. Why, though? Because the point of his coming wasn't to tell you all the details of his life. The point of his coming was so that he could grow up and humbly and obediently be prepared for the cross. And that's the wildest thought. When you look into the manger, when you consider the childhood, the teen years, the adult years of Jesus, all of it was headed towards something. History wasn't repeating itself in some sort of mad cycle. It was moving forward. And in history, in real history, a man really died on a cross, and we believe that man was God himself. Fully God, fully man, difficult to wrap your brain around. But tonight, let's explore a little bit about the childhood of Jesus. I only want to concentrate on two verses, but I want to read the, the context they come out of. So it'll be on the screen and you follow along in your copy of scriptures. I want to look at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 40, and read through to verse 52. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. 
After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Father, as we open your word, we do not want to see it as a simple literary device. We believe you when you say that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. We believe you when you say it can pierce completely through us to our spirit, to our soul. And so, Father, we want divine results. And the only way to get divine results is if we have divine help. So deliver your word to us. In Jesus, I pray, amen and amen. What's interesting is if you look just back in your Bible just a little bit to Luke chapter 1, verse 80, it says here, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Here's a massive overstatement. A massive overstatement. The, the, the Jewish people basically believe you had a very few phases of life. Birth to early adulthood. In early adulthood, some Jewish communities was 12 years old. and other Jewish communities, it was 13 years old. And they believe at that point you should step into man and woman type activities and man and woman type relationships. Mine's 21, and I still don't want nobody dating them. And so you get these couple little glimpses of Jesus in his baby years, maybe his toddler years, and then the rest they say about those years, and he kept growing. And then you get this episode when he's 12, he's entering the second phase of life. He's a young adult. He's an adult, which is a lesson on parenting, right? When our children enter this, this sort of 12, 13-year-old age, we should be helping them let go of childhood, and take up adulthood. And that's a really long process. And some people get there when they're about 40 or 50 in my case. And, and we'll need parental help all along the way, right? We just do. And then you enter in this young adult stage. I mean, excuse me, you're full adult stage. And they tell me, they tell me, the Jewish historians tell me, you're a full adult when you're 30. Yikes. You're a senior adult then when you're 30 years old. How many of you guys just became senior adults in this moment? Yep, you old. And what you get here in the Bible is, you know, if we're to believe our, our Jewish historians, you basically see an image of the three phases of Jesus' childhood. I mean, excuse me, his life. You see his childhood. And what did he do during his first 12 years? He grew in stature and in wisdom and favor with God and man. Then he did a thing when he was 12. Then what did he do until he was 30? He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And then he was 30, and he stepped out on the scene of the world to finish what he came to do, which was to die on the cross. Basically, I only have one point tonight, and I have it in two parts. Let me go ahead and give you this first part. Jesus had to grow up. Do you ever stop and think about that? Jesus had to grow up. Could you imagine teenage Jesus? Right? Could you imagine teenage Jesus struggling? 
You know, I, I, uh, I have more zits now than I did when I was 15. But could you imagine teenage Jesus with zits? And I don't want to go to synagogue today. My face is broke out. Could you imagine Jesus struggling to obey? Could you imagine Jesus talking back? You know, I can imagine all of grown man Jesus because the New Testament is littered with grown man Jesus' life. But I sometimes, I sometimes have a difficult time understanding or thinking about him as a young person, as a child, as a teenager. But the Bible says to us in no uncertain terms, the child grew. You see that? The child grew. As a matter of fact, it uses all kinds of developmental words in those three verses. He grew and became, verse uh, 80 of chapter 1 says. Verse 40 in chapter 2 says he grew and became. And then in verse 52 he says he increased in wisdom and in stature. In other words, there's all these words that are, that are basically saying he grew up. And that's a radical thought to me. Most of us can wrestle with Jesus growing up physically, but can you wrestle with Jesus growing up spiritually? How does somebody grow up spiritually? Over in Matthew chapter 4, we get a hint. It tells us in Matthew chapter 4 that it was his custom to be in the synagogue. One of the ways Jesus grew up spiritually is they had a custom of being under the teaching of God's word. Jesus grew up in believing parents' home. That helped him develop spiritually. Jesus grew up with a relationship with the Father that superseded all other relationships. You say, preacher, where do you get that? He thought his mom, Mary, should be the first one to realize. He had a relationship with the Father, and that meant listening to the Father no matter what anybody else was doing. My point is this, though. If you think about Jesus growing up, we start to see Jesus as an empathetic figure. Now, if you don't know what that means, don't worry. Don't worry. I had to look it up, too. Sympathy means you feel for somebody. Somebody say amen. Like, I've never been divorced, but I bet you somebody in this room has been divorced. I bet you. Like, I've, oh, my Jesus, I've never had a baby come out of my body. So if I see somebody struggling with divorce, if I see somebody struggling with, with childbirth, I can say, I feel for you. But empathy is, I feel what, church? With you. You can say, I know what that's like. And sometimes empathy and sympathy are right there together because maybe, maybe, Carolyn, you've had a brick dropped on you. And you see me get a brick thrown at me. You say, well, I don't know the emotional side of having it thrown at me, but I can tell you I know what it's like to be hit by a brick. Pain is pain is pain. Somebody say amen. You say, preacher, why do you bring that up? I thought we were talking about Christmas. Never forget when you look in the manger, he came and experienced life like us with only one exception, no sin. What are you going through right now? You need to see that Jesus knows what it means to develop and increase and experience this thing. Experience it. So when I start to wonder, can Jesus get me? Oh, yes, he can get me. Through his omniscience from heaven, he understands everything. Through his experience in the flesh, he um, understands it with empathy. Ever thought about the difference in that? I've often wondered, did Jesus ever do anything dumb? Like, I mean that 
not sinful dumb, just dumb dumb. Anybody here ever done anything dumb dumb? So we used to go to this place called Bass Mountain. Um, we go to the bluegrass show. It was Labor Day weekend. Um, we'd go down usually on Thursday and not come back until Monday morning if we could. Usually we was off on Monday and and um, one one year we wanted to play football and we didn't have a football. We couldn't find a football anywhere and we were all so young we didn't have license. Our parents weren't going to go get a football. Like find something. You know, go play cup ball. That was another famous sport where you make a ball out of cups and you bat them with your hand. Well, we found a two-liter bottle. And this wasn't long after they just started selling them in plastic. Oh, man. And this thing, it was brilliant. We filled it up with paper, and it had enough weight that you might could pass it, say, like from here to Ori. Man, we wanted to go for it. Like, I want to hit John back in the back. So we said, what we need to do is put some water in this. Hut. Oh, oh, boy, this is good. Until you did the kickoff. And I broke my foot. It hurt bad. You think, and you know, was that, was that like evil dumb? No, that was just ordinary dumb. And I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's profane to wonder as he grew, as he learned, as he developed, as he increased, did Jesus run into these kind of things? I can say this, if he didn't do it, and I don't know because the scripture don't speak on it. You can get some, you can get some uh, heretical gospels like the Gospel of Thomas, and they speak, but you can't depend on those sources. Let me just tell it to you. There's a Greek word that describes those sources, like the Gospel of Thomas. Some of you East Rockers know that Greek word. What is it? That's unmitigated hogwash. You can't trust those sources. This is what we know. God came in the flesh, took on a real body, and he knows what it's like to grow up in this world. And somehow, that deeply encourages me. Jesus had to grow up. He gets what it's like to struggle. Secondly, Jesus had to grow up so that he could be nailed up. That might be the more important point. No, I take back Mike. That's just a way to soften the blow. That is the more important point tonight. Let me take just a couple moments to give a theological point of view as we move toward a close. Don't miss the first part, though. The first part is this simple. Jesus knows what it's like to grow up and develop, and he did it without sin. So I imagine there wasn't the hindrance in his life that we often experience. Somebody say amen. But there's this other thing that we need to discuss. When you peer into the manger, and you should peer into the manger, you should see him able to identify with you. But when we peer into the manger, don't ever peer into the manger without seeing the cross hidden under his little bed. Because it's coming. It's coming. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what, church? Wow. How did Adam do with that? Here's the other Greek word you need to learn. He blew it. He blew it. He and his wife, Eve, they blew it. He blew it. She blew it. They blew it. 
And you can sit here and play the blame game all day long. That's, that's what they did. He said, the devil made me do it. Adam said, it was that woman you gave me. But here's the point. God makes this covenant with them, this deal with them. And it's often called the covenant of works. If you're a friend of mine on Facebook, you see I was, um, I was sort of baiting y'all a little bit tonight, if you notice it, by giving it to you in Latin. It was the covenant of works. And, and, you know, parents do covenant of works all the time. They'll say things like, if you clean your room, fill in the blank. We'll, we'll do whatever. We'll, um, you know, we'll get ice cream. If you do this, we'll do that. If you get your homework done in time, we'll watch a movie. And then what happens a lot of times? What happens to that covenant of works with your child? A lot of times it goes unfulfilled, doesn't it? And then what do you do if you're a parent or a grandparent? Likely if you're a grandparent, you cave. Kent, don't start. Kent said Brenda does. That dude's name ought to be Tootsie Pop. He's the biggest sucker in here. Brad, what do you say? Amen. Except when it came to you, right? <laughs> Something always happens between a child and a grandchild. But this was a covenant of works. God says, hey, hey, if you do this, I'll do that. What happens? Adam blows it. And it's not just Adam. Later on through the prophet Hosea, all the people come under condemnation. Hosea said, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. The theology that is so rich, so deep, so powerful, so important of the incarnation is that the first Adam failed. And every Adam-like person since has failed. So what does God do? God sends a second Adam. So when you read in Luke chapter 2, verses 40, and Luke chapter 2, verses 52, that he grew in stature and in wisdom and in favor with God and man, do you know what he was doing? He was doing what the first Adam failed to do. He was humbly and obediently walking with the Father, and he, he was going to win back this gifted kingdom. He's going to win back creation for mankind in the process Set all the broken little Adams and Eves free from slavery. I won't read it all because I see time flying by, but let me, let me get into, the, into a passage in Romans chapter 5. I'll pick it up in verse 17, Mary Lou. You'll find it's in the bottom of one of those slides. But do, do look at this. Look at uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 when you have time. Let me pick it up in verse 17. And, and just show you guys a, a little bit. Uh, you can find it there. It's uh, toward the bottom of the screen. For if because of one man's trespass. You can read that like that. Like this. For if because of Adam's trespass. Now what, what happened after Adam's trespass? You tell me. Death reigned. Adam gave over dominion that God had gifted him. And then what took over? Death. All right. You see that, right? For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We're already with Adam, 
But Christ came to obediently, humbly obey the Father all the way to the cross so that then we can join with Jesus in reigning in life. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for how many people, y'all? All men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What did the first Adam do? He blew it. What did the second Adam do? Simply this, he didn't blow it. Now here's the story, and I'll go to it quickly. Here's where it sums up the whole story. Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. How far did he become obedient to, y'all? To the point of death, and how did that death come? How long was Jesus obedient? All the way to the cross. How big was his obedience? It was the cross. What did the obedience accomplish? First Timothy 1.15 tells us, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came in the world to do what, church? Hallelujah. Save sinners. Now you say, what's the big deal here, preacher? Well, I'll tell it to you. The first Adam failed. God sent a second Adam. It's Christ who obeyed all the way. What was he doing while he was a little boy? Obeying. What was he doing when he was a teenager? Obeying. The Bible even said he was being submissive to his parents. God bless him. I sure struggled with that in my childhood and teenage years. Anybody else? I'm talking about obedience is easy compared to honoring them, and I blew the obedience. Amen? I just flat out blew it. And I'm not going to read them, but this, this stuff is scattered all over the New Testament. I just threw up three more verses on the screen just to give you a sampling. It's all over the New Testament. Uh, he, he, he was born to die. Why? So he could win back the kingdom. All right, now, right now, here's, here's this semi-frightening reality. We are either with the first Adam or we're with the second Adam. And there's, there's absolutely no other position to be in. There's no gray area. Like a lot of people say, you know, the gray areas, they ain't gray. The gray is in your brain. That's where the gray matter is. It's, 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 it's black and white. I mean, pick your colors. It's pink and purple. You know, I, I don't even, I'm not good with colors. Pick your, but it's not something in between. Jesus would even say it so very starkly. He says, you're, you're either with me or you will be scattered. In other words, there's not even a cohesiveness on that other side. You know why it's not a cohesiveness? Because that other side is going to be smashed. Finally and fully, it's going to be smashed. The one heading up that other side is going to have his head smooshed. Now you say, what's this got to do with Christmas? Everything. Everything. The most important issue of Christmas is not so much that Jesus came, but why he came. There is no salvation 
in his birth, but there's no salvation without his birth. There's no salvation in his growing up, but you don't get salvation if he doesn't grow up. There's no salvation in his young adult life, but if he doesn't make it to that point of the crucifixion, we don't get salvation. All of that was this hard, honorable march toward an inexorable mission. And that's the cross. His ultimate purpose is to die on that cross and to rise from that grave. I want to share a quote. I put it in the bulletin. I put it on the screen. I want you to walk home with it. Last week, if you weren't here, I don't even know if I should bring it back up. Last week, I actually told a story using Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. And in that, in that, the guy Ricky Bobby was talking about Jesus' little baby fists pawing at the air, he said. And I told y'all last week, that captured my imagination. I'd never thought about that. You ever watch a little baby try to hold a bottle with their fist? It always, I always just think it's so cute. And they finally learn to open their hands. And then I read this quote from John MacArthur. Those soft little hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day stagger up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and an eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. A tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. I don't know if that first manger was made of wood, but I know that cross was. And in the irony of ironies, even as Jesus was being formed in the womb and growing up in the world, so was the tree that he would hang on. In irony of ironies, as Jesus' little hands were being developed, so were the centurions. As God's plan had been since the foundation of the earth, so had the metal been in the ground that would be fashioned to the nails pounded through his flesh. As all matter came into view, all, all of this cosmos came into view, God stepped into it for a grand purpose. And that was so he could die on the cross. He had to be raised up before he could be raised up. He had to grow up before he could be on that cross, lifted up, as the scripture says. You know, I'll be lifted up and draw men to myself. He had to be raised up before he could be raised up. He had to grow up before he could be nailed up. And the two great truths I want to challenge your soul are these. He gets what it's like to be in your shoes. And he invites you to avoid being in his. One man has gone to the cross and he says, that's enough. You don't have to go. And that's the most radical thought to me at Christmas. Why was Jesus born to die? Why did he die? 
Why did he come take a walk in my shoes? So that I wouldn't have to take a walk in his. Do you know him today? No, we have a lot of visitors. Praise God. Thank you for being here. Guess what? Next week we'll have more music. Come back. The parking will be equally confusing. It's a BOGO. Buy one, get one. Couldn't find somewhere to park last week. Next week, same thing. Praise God. Here in our local church, we're wrestling with the scriptures every single week. We don't claim to have the answer, answers, but we've been given access to the most productive mind on the face of the planet. And we just keep digging out gold and silver and diamonds and rubies. There's a great treasure in the word of God, and that treasure is Christ. The Bible tells us if we will believe on that name, and that means believing on him and everything he did. We'll believe on that name. And if we'll confess him with our mouth, we'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from Adam 1's destiny. Saved to the second Adam's inheritance. Isn't that cool? You're not just taken from something. You're taken to something. Saved from the wrath of God, granted the rest of God. Saved from the poverty of death and given the riches of eternity. Saved from the punishment of hell, given the fellowship of God. And it's all wrapped up in Christ. The Bible says if you believe and receive, if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. Maybe tonight's the night of your salvation. Maybe you came to hear some kids ring the bells and God's rung yours. He rung mine back in March of 1997. I didn't grow up in church, was not interested at all. But when he rung my bell, when he called me into salvation through Christ Jesus, I have never wanted anything more than to be around people who know that experience. That's all I want, day in and day out. I don't, I don't wait for Sunday. I wait for every day. I want to walk with people who walk with him. Well, maybe, maybe you believed and it's time for you to obey him in baptism. Maybe God's been calling you to, to become a part, a covenant part of this local church. We look fairly laid back, but we're very serious about God. Whatever God's been talking to you about, I want you to know these two things tonight. He gets you, and he wants to rescue you. Praise God. Michael, would you guys come and lead us in a, a, a song? Where is Michael? Oh, there he is. And uh, as we sing, the altar's yours. You can grab a friend and pray. You can grab me. I'm going to be right here on the front row. Don't be ashamed. What happens during this time, a lot of times, the spirit woos you, and you feel like, man, is this real? Am I, am I really going to go down there and pray or something? It feels strange because this could be your first opportunity to say yes ever in your life. Or maybe you just need to sit there and listen to the song, not even stand up. Just let God deal with you. Just try to respond to him. I'm going to pray, and then would you lead us, Mike? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to <laughs> see these blessed kids. And I thank you for an opportunity to share from your word. 
I pray, Father, you do what only you can do. No tweaking of emotions from me, Father. But if you're dealing with somebody's heart, we trust you to the work of it. Help us to give in to you and share your strength. In Jesus I pray. Amen.